Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by Wall Street Journal sports reporter Lane Higgins, former Colorado Buffalo quarterback Cordell Stewart, and the RL Carriers New Orleans Bowl Executive Director Billy Ferrante. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest writes for the Wall Street Journal. She's based in New York City, a native of Minneapolis and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, where she was a captain of the swim team. We welcome to the show, Lane Higgins. Lane, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Well, you've been at the Wall Street Journal since 2017, but you also have experiences at Sports Illustrated, the Players' Tribune. You've covered the 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, you're, you're not even very old. Uh, <laughs> so you've done a lot uh, already. Tell us about your journey so far that led you to become a sports writer. Yeah. Um, I kind of happened into it on accident. Um, I always loved sports growing up and I knew I wanted to be a writer and journalist in some regard. And in college, I started working for the sports section of the newspaper just because I thought it'd be a good way to meet other athletes and make friends. And you know, you're not really making friends when you're asking the goalie who's just lost of, you know, why he let a you know, game losing goal in or something like that. So that part didn't really work, but I was really excited about it. And I had a mentor encourage me to intern in sports and just try it out. And I had my first summer of college, I interned at USA Today for the sports section and just fell in love with the rush of it and, you know, getting to go to live events and, you know, being right in the thick of things. And, yeah, from there, it's been a lot of internships. Uh, that's what I was, those are the roles that I was in at Sports Illustrated and the Players' Tribune. And then, um, yeah, the Wall Street Journal has been just kind of thrown into a little bit of everything. And because our sports section is quite small, we all get to sort of dabble in lots of different beats. So I've, I've loved that about the job. Well, you're a big fan of the Olympics. Uh, you know, growing up, it inspired you to, to swim. You know, you're a graduate <laughs> of the University of Pennsylvania, as we mentioned, on the swimming, swimming and diving team. Tell me, how did competing in sports prepare you to cover sports? Yeah, I mean, I think especially at the college level, which is obviously you know the main thing I cover, it really gives you a sense of respect and understanding of what these athletes are going through. Um, and that, you know, when you're a division one athlete, you don't have time for anything aside from your sport and school and, you know, maybe trying to squeeze your friends in somewhere. And I think that being able to sort of get some insight into that and be able to ask the questions. And sometimes that does inform the kinds of stories we write when it's thinking about, you know, the non-Olympic sports and how they're maybe going to be affected by things like UCLA and USC moving to the Big Ten um, and travel and whatnot. And I think definitely it helps build a bridge between you and the athletes that you're talking to because, you know, I try not to name drop it all the time, but sometimes by saying like, yeah, I was once in your shoes are like oh okay like you kind of get it like you understand what it takes to be at this level just because it's, it's hard to put wrap your mind around it unless you try it and yeah I think college athletes have some appreciation for others that have done the same thing what does it mean to you to cover sports with such an iconic media brand like the Wall Street Journal and and I don't know does, does everybody even know that the Wall Street Journal has a sports section <laughs> Well, to your last point, no. <laughs> it's funny. I was at SEC Media Days this year and several, you know, other reporters came up to me and asked like, so like, are you here writing about the business of college sports? And I was like, no, I'm writing about the football plays just like you are. 
but you know, I pinched myself a lot getting to work at you know the paper. It's obviously there's incredible journalists that work there, and there's lots of opportunities to learn from them, especially the ones that are other you know other beef, winning Pulitzers, things like that. Um, and all my other colleagues at the journal sports section are so clever that it's a it's a very fun environment to work in. And yeah, I still don't totally believe that I have this job, but uh, definitely holding on to it with both hands. So you grew up watching and rooting for Michigan football. Your dad played wide receiver there. And it seems like virtually your entire family, other than you went to school there. Uh, I also read that your Saturdays are spent watching up to 12 hours of college football. What is it about that sport that appeals to you? You know, something about how it's messy and chaotic and it's obviously not as polished of a product as in the NFL just makes it wonderful. Like I have so many memories of, you know, watching a Michigan game slip away at the last minute because of a muffed punch or, you know, there's so many examples of things coming down to the wire. And in a way, it's both, you know, excruciating and exciting and just it makes it so much fun to be a part of because, you know, I firmly believe that no college football game is over until the final whistle blows because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, something about the turnover and you get to see stars grow up in the program and just all of the predictions around it are so special. And, you know, as someone that grew up, as you said, watching football, like we, my family has a video of me like in diapers at 18 months holding a Michigan pom-pom walking around the house saying hail yeah. as much from hail to the victors as I could manage at the same <laughs> like just being a part of it has been really really fun and uh I mean nothing against pro sports they're also fantastic I have so much respect for the athletes that do them but something about college football is just a little more delightful and chaotic well, this podcast is called Bowl Season Stories. So <laughs> let's talk about your experiences going to bowl games. I, I know you've you've been to them as a fan. You've covered them uh, in your current job. Tell us about some of your memories going to bowl games. What, any great, uh, great stories that, that came of those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely would always watch Michigan at the bowl games growing up. But the first time that I actually went to a bowl game was in college because our swim team went down to Boca Raton for a training trip in December. And my coach is a huge college football fan. So he would always ask people if they wanted to skip a morning practice and buy tickets and go to the Orange Bowl and watch it. And this was before the college football playoffs, So it wasn't quite as intense as it maybe is now. Um, but there was one year we saw Clemson in Ohio state and, you know, I had no idea what Clemson was at that time. And I hated Ohio state, but I was like, I just want to go see college football and like, yeah, getting a practice off of training trip was also an awesome park, but you know, just being able to be in that environment and see how excited people were was really, really cool. And then in this job, obviously we tend to go for the semifinals and the final and um, just, seeing how electric it is, especially, you know, Georgia in the semifinal against Michigan, just how starved that fan base was for a title. And like, it was, it's cool to see some of those storylines come to fruition, you know, same as with when LSU won the title in New Orleans, like that was just a perfect storm. And New Orleans is a fun sports town, but like, I've rarely seen it so electric as it was that day. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, and this season is, is unfolding before our eyes. We're about a uh, a third or uh, I think a third of the way through uh, what teams have impressed you so far? What's really kind of stood out any surprises in your mind that you didn't expect to see? 
Well, if we're talking about surprises, Kansas football is undefeated heading into October. Like, who would have called that? No um, one. Yeah, certainly not. And I think, you know, Tennessee has been really surprising. They look fantastic. Hendon Hooker has been an incredible quarterback there. Same with uh, Washington. They're having a great resurgence. And, you know, new coach, new quarterback from the transfer portal. And I'm not so surprised by USC doing well, given that they – totally restocked the entire roster with transfers, but it's been fun to watch them as well. Obviously Georgia looks as indomitable as ever and Alabama is maybe showing a few signs of weakness. So I'm hopeful that we'll maybe get another upset of Alabama this year. Uh, like we did last year at Texas A&M. I don't think Texas A&M is going to be the team to do it again, but you know, crazier things have happened. So I think it's been a season of a lot more parody outside of like the top two or three teams of Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama. And from there, like positions four to 25, it's pretty wide open. And I think that makes for a great season. I agree. I, I think it's, I personally, for me, it's always fun when you see some teams that you don't necessarily talk about in college football, all of a sudden coming to the forefront and having their day. One of the knocks on the CFP is we see the same teams in the playoff every year. And uh, you know, while, while that's great for those teams, it might not be good for the game as a whole. Uh, I know you've covered the CFP championship game. You were there firsthand doing interviews in New Orleans when LSU won the title in 2020. Tell us about covering a big game like that for a young reporter who's also a college football fan. Yeah, I mean, that first game that I covered, I think I was 23 or maybe 24. So I was like such imposter syndrome, like so intimidated because, you know, the fifth year seniors are the same age as me in the locker room. But for the most part, you know, you kind of just put on your big girl pants and go in and think like, okay, like I'm here to do a job. I'm going to do it. I'm in this role for a reason. And, you know, it's intimidating when you're in a locker room and there's a scrum and you're just trying to yell to get your voice heard um, and ask a question. But for the most part, I think the biggest thing was just not being afraid to, you know, embarrass myself if I ask something dumb or just be in the mix and go up to athletes and just assert yourself that you like, as if you belong there. And it was, I mean, that locker room after LSU won was so wild and that, you know, you had a very, very drunk Odell Beckham Jr. coming in and just yelling things like Ezekiel Elliott was there. All the players were smoking cigars and the police came in and told them to put them out. So like that whole environment was just a lot of craziness. And uh, I don't know if it's always the best, uh, most conducive environment to getting good answers out of athletes when they're celebrating like that. <laughs> but for the most part, like it's, it's just exciting. And it's also so much easier to write about a game like that when LSU puts the team away pretty early. When you have games that go down to the wire, it's like you have two whole stories written going at deadline. And it's like, okay, which one is going to see the light of day and which one is just going to go in the wastebasket and never go anywhere. So it's uh, it, that one was a little bit easier to get through in that sense. So where are you going to be this December? Will you have the chance to cover any bowl games or is it too early to tell? It's a little early for the whole schedule, um, but I might try to catch the pinstripe bowl just because it is in New York City. Uh, I guess it's not named that anymore. I don't think it's it's still bad the pinstripe bowl. Bad boy mowers okay. pinstripe bowl. They kept the pinstripe bowl name. Yep, which is very important. Okay, got yes. it. Yes. Okay, wanted to make sure I was getting that right. Um, but I definitely will be at one of the semifinals. Um, I'm not sure which it will be. Um, I love the Fiesta Bowl mainly because. I love having a chance to go into the desert in Arizona and uh, go run and hike and whatnot. But, you know, that said, I think we'll see where it goes. We'll see what storylines there are, but usually we're at one or two. 
So a bowl game in New York City over the holidays and then another bowl game in beautiful sunshine in the winter. That sounds like a great plan. I like that. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I should say, I forgot to mention this, but my mom is a bit of a, I wouldn't say a pack rat, but she was very sentimental about all of my dad's old football stuff. So she kept all of the team gear and t-shirts and jerseys from the Fiesta Bowl, the Rose Bowl, Holiday Bowl. And I think, I don't know if they were at Sugar, but there was one other bowl that they went to during my dad's time. And one of my favorite sweatshirts now is like my dad's team warm-up sweatshirt from the 1986 Rose Bowl. And like, I don't think everyone really like gets that that's what it's from, but like, it's my absolute favorite. And it's, I don't know, the bowl games are definitely a big part of our family more because my mom famously bought tickets to Pasadena for the Rose Bowl before Michigan played the game that would get them there. And she was like so nervous that they were going to lose and that she was going to lose her money on the tickets. And obviously it ended up working out. Uh, that, that's a cool story. I, I need to see a picture of those warm-ups. Those are probably iconic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more. I think we have more photos of my sister and I playing dress up in my dad's old jerseys, and like they go down to our ankles because we're about six years old. But uh, yeah, we thought they were the coolest things. <laughs> so, so much fun. Well, Lane, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I can't wait to see where your career takes you. You're obviously so passionate about the sport. You, you're a great writer. Um, bright future ahead for you. Uh, hopefully, we run into each other uh, on the road this bowl season. Thanks for yeah, likewise. Us. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to be here. We're going to take a short break and be right back with former Colorado Buffalo quarterback Cordell Stewart. Stay with us. The forecast for this tax season, it's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Our next guest played quarterback for the University of Colorado and set several school records, including most career passes completed, passing yards, and touchdown passes. He was drafted in the second round by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1995 and played 11 years in the NFL. We welcome to the show Cordell Stewart. Cordell, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, brother. How you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Awesome. Now, you, you were at Colorado for four years. Right. It's rarely these days that a player of your caliber stays for four years. But uh, as a result, you got to experience four bowl games. You went to the Blockbuster in in Miami, two Fiesta Bowls in Arizona, uh, the Aloha Bowl in Hawaii. Pretty cool places to go. Uh, We'll we'll probably touch on all of them. But your senior year, your last game uh, in the Fiesta Bowl, you got you got to beat a a Notre Dame team that had national championship aspirations. Uh, last game of your college career. What do you remember about closing out your career at Colorado with a win over the Fighting Irish? Well, the funny part about that one was uh, they were trying to determine if they wanted to wear their navy blue jerseys or their green jerseys. So there was a delay with them coming out of the tunnel. Mind you, both teams come out of the same tunnel. We were already out. So you kind of see this this lull of of energy taking place because, you know, everything is on, on a timer in a sense. You kind of know once you're out, the other team actually ends up coming in. And before you know it, whoop, as they say, whoop, there it is. You're ready to go play. Well, for whatever reason, you know, they didn't come out on time. And when they did come out, they came out with the green jerseys. So we all started using that as kind of a, an adage, if you will, to, to say, you know what? They think the luck is going to come by wearing the green. We're going we're gonna to put some pressure on them. And lo and behold, uh, we end up putting the pressure on them, putting pressure on them. I think the score ended up being like 33 to three at half or something like that. And Oliver Gibson was number 55. So he was pacing out front and, 
end up being on a team with me in Pittsburgh. And I asked him what that was all about. He said, man, I had to get those guys ready for that or whatever. But I'm like, you didn't do a good job, Oliver. So uh, <laughs> so we kind of we kind of talked about that. But those experiences in the bowl games, especially that one, my senior year, that was Coach Max last year. Um, we knew that Rick Neuheisel was my offense, was my quarterback's coach. Uh, and he had the opportunity to get the job to be the next head coach for Colorado, which ended up happening. So there was a lot of excitement, um, feelings of, of anxiety of going to the next level, but also not wanting to leave such a great experience that myself, Michael Westbrook, the late response, Lom, you know, players like that, Christian Fourier, Derek West, my offensive lineman, to Chris Hudson on defense, you know, all these guys who had an opportunity to leave the next season, we had to make the most of it. And, you know, we ended up coming out victorious. But just the experience with the guys was just unbelievable. Going to Scottsdale didn't hurt, by the way. I just want you to know that. You know, having a chance to go to Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, a couple times out of your uh, out of your career in college, it's not that bad. I got to be honest with you. So um, to go back to that area in Tempe, playing there at Arizona State, uh, Sun Devil Stadium, uh, it was a familiar place. Played there a couple of years prior against Syracuse uh, Orangemen, but that year was one that was uh, memorable, and, and and we had a chance to have a Heisman Trophy winner on our team, Sean Salam and Michael Westbrook, arguably the best receiver in the country at that time. So it was it was uh, it was it was it was very fun, but uh, kind of sad at the same time because you have to remember that was that was our very last game of our career there uh, with the Buffs. But you guys were loaded. You were a fun team to watch for sure. You, you, you talk about bowl destinations. So a, a lot of people focus on, you know, the, the, the New Year's Day bowls, the, the, the quote, bigger bowls, and obviously Fiesta Bowl against Notre Dame, national championship right. implications. But the year before, you guys were kind of building towards that great 94 season. And well, yeah, you know what? You got a chance to go to the Aloha Bowl. You took a trip to Hawaii with, with your teammates and spent a week there. Tell us about that. Come on, man. You know, I've never gone to Hawaii up until that point. You know, the only time you really see anything coming from New Orleans about Hawaii was on postcards at the at the corner store. Right. You know, you take the postcards off the rack, you sign the back of them, send them off to family members and give them the illusion, you know, that that's either where you are or it's a dream destination. Well, that dream destination came true. And uh, to go out and play against Fresno State with uh, what was it? Trent Dilfer. And David Dunn, who was a receiver, and they were breaking, who was a tight end, matter of fact, at that time. Uh, they were breaking records all over the place. Had a chance to play with David Dunn in Pittsburgh, but I can see why Trent looked at him as his go to receiver. But that experience going to the North Shore, uh, going to the Dull Pineapple uh, Manufacturer, uh, also the Bananas, everything, you know, at Sugar King Fields on both sides. Bro, you had a chance to go to, again, to the North Shore to see the big waves, to, you know, ride around on scooters, you know, uh, around the city and, you know, everything that entails being around water and on the beach, you know, we got it at the highest level and, and, and the love and respect we got from the fan base because we have players like the Donnell Leomides to a few other guys from Hawaii that was on our, te- uh, on our team. Christian, Chris Nioli was another. Uh, so when you, when you see how we recruit coach, uh, Cabral, Brian Cabral, who was a bigger recruit, big recruiter out of that area because he's a wine himself and he's still there with the University of Colorado. Uh, we would always get a great mixture of whether it be Samoans or Hawaiians coming over to the team. So 
having that be an, a destination to play a bowl game, it really was a tremendous amount of fun. I would say, honestly, that probably was the most fun of any bowl that I've gone to that I can, you can honestly have. Uh, didn't get on the surfboard. was too afraid of the sharks. Uh, kind of stay in the, 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 the good water, you know, basically by the hotels, you know, over in Honolulu where we were staying, where there was a Marriott or wherever we were staying. Because you, you can assume nothing would come that close to the shore. Uh, but you go over to the North Shore, where the, the water is much deeper as soon as you get ready to get in. Uh, if you catch one of those waves that's hitting up against the bank of, uh, of the sand, you can end up getting rail sucked in and, and, and pushed back out and underwater into the sea. And that, that, that's not what we wanted. So we didn't have any crazy casualties, you know, nothing crazy happened, but uh, just the fun to be out in the sun. Cause remember that time of year, Colorado, that's probably two to three, maybe four to five feet of snow on the ground. So to get a chance to be in, 80 to 90 degree weather night and day was pretty remarkable for that entire time that we were there. So it was a gift as well as an opportunity to play ball. And we ended up becoming victorious. And and, uh, all that being said, that was, that was a phenomenal time as well. Well, I'm with you on all that stuff, especially staying away from the sharks. Yeah. yeah, We we, would, even I could, would have stuck together somewhere away from (laughs) those guys. (laughs) Exactly. We were there. Exactly. Now, since you've experienced bowl games four times, you're probably as good of an expert as anybody to ask this. What, what does a bowl trip mean to a team to close out a successful season, especially for the guys, like you mentioned, your senior year for the guys who are seniors and don't go on to play in the pros. You think about it. It's their last football game ever and you get to spend it at some cool place with, you know, a hundred of your closest friends. T- tell me what that means. Yeah. I mean, some guys, truthfully, um, outside of it being your last or just a bowl in general, I'll get to that, that question. Um, is you get a chance to have your family to come out also, you know, some guys who can afford it, uh, family will come out. So it can become a family affair and being that it was, you know, our last year, it was just that, um, but those teams that get chances to play in those bowl games, it's like a reward, right? You may not want to play for a national championship. You may not play for a conference title or regional title, if you will. Uh, but to get a chance to go to a bowl game means you're, you're taking another road trip, but to a neutral destination. Wishfully, you know, more west where the sun is shining more times than not, or down in parts of Florida or in the dome, you know, whether it's in Dallas or in New Orleans, places like that you know, so that you can actually enjoy the game. Um, most of them are West, but even further West gets better. Like I said, Hawaii, but uh, it's, it's a time to, to, to digress, you know, from, you know, a, a really good season for most that make it to bowl games to get the bowl game gifts, you know, watches, sweatsuits. Um, I forgot if we got money. I thought if we got money, but all of that, the way the game is nowadays, I don't know what you can get, what's what's legal, what's not legal now with NIL. So you can get a lot more. Gifts, you get a lot more, right? I mean, yeah. you get rings in some cases, uh, bags, you know, memorable. You know, it's like going to a, a golf tournament, right? A charity golf tournament. The things you remember most is what? The venue and the gift bag. Same thing when it comes to bowl games. The venue and the gift bags. And then it doesn't hurt to win and take home the hardware too as well. So, you know, for those teams that have a chance to go to bowl games, that's what it's about, man. You get a chance to put on your travel suit and take a duffel bag or whatever you're taking with you to, to know you're going to be gone for a week, four days, you know, and, and 
you know, you're going to get the hospitality that you deserve because on that given weekend, you're the only team in that area. If that's the area where the game, like Texas is another country within itself. California is another country within itself. And so is Florida, but other States, you know, uh, sometimes when you have the hula bowl, as we talked about a moment ago, if that's the final destination, you're the only 10 game in town. If you're playing in the Fiesta Bowl more times than not on that particular day, you're the only game in town. So most games that are played in certain cities, bowl games, you're the only game played in town. So you get all the love from everybody. You go to the mall, you go grocery shopping, you know, you get meals at restaurants when hanging out with your buddies and not, you know, being out too late when it comes to curfew or whatever. You do everything before that. But it's a time to have fun. You know, it's the reward. Uh, it's getting us a little different now, right? Uh, let's just be transparent. Back when we played to go to a bowl game, it meant you were playing for national championship implications, right? Most times, you know, the top ranks. Nowadays, you know, you got different, so many bowls, you know, to the point where now it's become more gifting to have a solid year. So back in the day, what was it? The Orange Bowl, right? It was the Cotton Bowl. It was the Sugar Bowl. It was the Rose Bowl. Those were the top four bowls way back when. Then the Fiesta Bowl came along. Um, and then you have the Capra Bowl. You have the Alamo Bowl. You have the Bolero Bowl. You just have so many bowls now to where you can't really keep up with them. But the ones you truly prepared to watch is a Rose Bowl. That's Pasadena, right? Curtin Verone? That's right. Yep. The Rose Bowl, which we've all uh, we all love to watch because you have the the Rose Bowl Day Parade and all that fun stuff in that area. The sun's more time than not is always shining. Uh, the Orange Bowl is still considered a great bowl uh, just because of the memories of the Orange Bowl where Colorado and Notre Dame played in it two consecutive years. Uh, Colorado came up short uh, in 89. Uh, I think it was 89-90 to 90-91. They ended up getting that one, uh, beating Notre Dame by uh, getting a, a block in the back with Rocket Ishmael, took that thing back to the house. Um, bowls like that, the Cotton Bowl, the, the you know, all those great bowls. So, it's uh it's different now, you know. Um, Fiesta Bowl, you know, obviously the Fiesta uh, energy, uh, the festivity energy, you know. Um, well, you mentioned that uh, that Fiesta Bowl against Syracuse, the first one of the two you were in. That was at the end of the '92 right. season. I bring that up yep. again since you and I shared the field that day. I was a young graduate assistant for the Orange that season, and uh, you and I were talking about it before the show. They, they the Fiesta Bowl put in some kind of new field system with drainage. It was like a big sandbox. Thanks guys. And, and yeah, exactly. Well, you, you adjusted fine, but what I, my biggest memory from that game is when you guys took the field and Ralphie came running out, those guys that were handling Ralphie, or I should say the, the, the guys that Ralphie was handling, that part. they decided to swing around in front of our bench, you know, as Ralphie made his route but Ralphie's footing wasn't, was, ex, you know, extremely unsteady, you know, in that. Right. Thing. So I, I, I thought he was going to wipe out our whole sideline. I, I'm surprised we even could collect ourselves and play the game at that point. Well, we do have the best mascot in the history of football. Let's just say, it is I don't great. care. I don't care what part of football you choose to talk about, right? It's Canada here in the States and the United States to uh, the pros, whichever one you choose. Anything, any mascot in, in, in the history of mascots, we have arguably the best. I know the Longhorns feel like they have a, a great 
uh, mascot there with the Texas Longhorns. I know down in, you know, Athens here in Georgia, they get excited. I know the Tiger there with LSU. I mean, all greats, you know, CSU with the GOAT, right? You know, the Rams in the same, you know, the Rams, they kind of create. I get all of that. But a live Buffalo, if you will, running down the field, being handled by six-plus people, having to, to, to narrow his focus into running in the back of that trailer, you have to master this thing. Like, this is a moving object. I like to call it an object that can really, as you alluded to, wipe people out. You know, everybody gets excited about theirs. Yeah, okay, the Boomer Sooners, they have their, 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 you know, the carriage and all that. Grace. We've seen that thing turn over so many dang on times. That's, it's, it's laughable. But in the Orangemen, I guess you guys have a big thing walking around, a big old orange on it. I don't. It's not very intimidating. It's not very it's intimidating. It's not intimidating. No. But Ralphie. You can see his eyeballs. His eyeballs about the size of some of our heads, right? It's, it's huge. And we had to take pictures when we first got there our freshman season, or every time we take pictures every year, you have an option to take a picture with Ralphie inside of his cage. Mind you, we know they know how to handle Ralphie uh, in the sense of making sure he's calm and relaxed. You know, everyone's around. It's not a tense moment for them, but for us to stand next to Ralphie in the top of his head is above where you are. And his head is about the size of from my mid thigh up to my head. And that's just a, away from no, 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 no. So I, I was intimidated as many times as we had a chance to spend time with Ralphie. Uh, took my son to Colorado and, and one of the big games uh, there when I got into the hall of fame uh, dating back, I can't remember the exact date. I, you know, I, I aged myself sometimes, but it was a few years, uh, about three or four years ago, I got in, got inducted into the Colorado hall of fame and, Got a chance to take my son, Sire, uh, over to take a picture with he and I and and Ralphie and my college roommate, Chris, and my strength coach, Mad Dog, uh, and a few other friends that was with us. And we all took pictures next to Ralphie. And I remember my son, while he was in the cage and he was every bit of 10 feet away from the cage, I'm taking the picture kind of between he and Ralphie to let him see. And he's cutting his eyes to try to keep his eye on Ralphie because he was so afraid. Because he's never seen anything up close like that before. You know, we have had dogs, but had an Akita, but he's not as big as Ralphie. I mean, Ralphie eat that thing for, for, for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, but, you know, Ralphie, man, I tell you, you guys were brave to stand as close as you did inside the white box on the sideline because um, Ralphie can get out of control. But I think the handlers we have there in Boulder have done a magnificent job of, of keeping, him, keeping him contained. Her, he contained. Um, and um, greatest mascot in all of, all of sports. Well, I got two more questions for you. And and of, mm-hmm. of all your accomplishments, there's there's a couple things that you're really known for, and, and maybe too much. So I don't know. You tell me. I got to ask you first about the the hail mary in hmm. 1994. I'll ask you the question a little different way. Is there a day goes by that someone doesn't ask you about it? And do you embrace it, or do you get tired of talking about it? Well, the days that go by when no one asks me is when I'm inside. Uh, means I don't have to deal with anybody. But every September 24th of every single year, either it's the game leading up to the game, prior, whichever, it's always celebrated. And that's respect. You have to appreciate it. It is, is, again, another arguably better than most type situation. Um, Turn the volume down. I know they, on ESPN, they always like to show the one in Boston with Doug Flutie and I get the implications that they knocked off the number one Miami Hurricanes. I get all that stuff. 
But when we talk about the greatest Hail Mary pass in the history of throwing that pass, outside of Stanford and Cal, you know, when the band was coming on the field and they were lobbing the ball, they ended up scoring a touchdown. But when you look at, that was a Hail Mary moment. We're talking about a Hail Mary pass. The ball was thrown from the minus 26 yard line, not the official yard line. We're talking about from where it was released out of off the fingertips of the quarterback. And I'm speaking in third person here, the quarterback. And to get it remotely close would have been great. But to get it going, dropping in an angle to where it was either going to go past the goal line to being right on it with Blake Anderson, James Kidd, number two, Ray Carew, 21, Michael Westbrook coming around. You couldn't have drawn it up any better with Derek, with Tony Birdie and Rashawn Salam just, just mauling the end off the edge. And the greatest thing about this play, which no one really gives credit to, and I say credit to because it did us a favor, is they only had three rushers, assuming that we wouldn't be able to get it down there. Even Coach Mack said he wasn't sure. He saw me do it in practice. But come on, we're talking about the, the closing moments of the game. And to have to do it in that moment, considering the back and forth, the ebbs and flows of the game, having the game in our hands, but make penalties, whatever you want to call it, we were having that took us out of position, made it harder for ourselves. Um, but by Michigan not converting that third down really made life great for us. Mm-hmm. But to, to, to get to that point, to make that play, everything had to work perfectly. And I promise you, as we drew it up in practice, with Rick Neuheisel leading the helm, with me not necessarily throwing it every single time, but at least getting two or three throws out of it just to get my warm, prepare for a just-in-case moment. You can't just say snap and say hut, and then quarterback drops back, receivers trot downfield, they get in position, have a conversation down there, but the quarterback never does it. I see it all the time. You know, it was many times in the league when I got to the National Football League, all we did was draw it up. We never threw it. And I think that's why so many, so many quarterbacks, you know, in the league don't have big arms like they had when they were in college because you don't practice that behavior. You practice landmarks, 44 by 4 for a fade route. You know, hit fifth step on a 10-yard outdoor that anticipated throw between he and the sideline. You know, back shoulder throws, curls. and t- That's all moderate throws. We're talking about stuff outside the norm to try to make something Hail Mary-ish to happen. Called the Hail and Mary for, for a reason. And right? it, 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 there you go. And and, <laughs> yeah. and and so to see it happen again, it get tipped. The Hall of Famer Ty Law covering Michael Westbrook, uh, Colorado Football Hall is in Colorado Football Hall of Fame in the state, as well as at the institution. Um, it's definitely one of the most replayed bro, college football plays of all time. You can't never gets old because because when you, <laughs> as a coach, you answered my question. My, it never, it gets never old. gets old. It never yeah. gets old because when when playing in high school, my son, it was um, I was a coach. I was a quarterbacks and receivers coach, and a lot of the kids trying to do homework because you know they don't. You know, it's at an era where if you're not relevant on television and you're not in in the media of some sort. You know, the kids that are young, they don't they know through via the parents or uncles or cousins, but they don't know themselves personally. They know the current players like the Russell Wilsons, the Patrick Mahomes, people like that. So when they do research, the first thing they come back and talk about is, coach, you threw the ball from right here all the way down there. 
And so when I stand next to the kids to watch them talk about it and be excited about it, I have a moment myself and I'm like, God damn, threw that ball pretty freaking far, dude. Like, and the quarterbacks try to throw it. Ball barely gets to the 30 yard line on the other side of the field. And I'm like, you know, you got to be a pretty good quarterback to be able to throw it that far. So all year, the kids are trying to do it all year long, even the receivers, the DBs and you know, we have fun of it. So it never really gets old because it takes a life of its own every single time when you know these new kids on the block and, and uh, doing this all the time, a new conversation comes up. It's asked a little different, but still come up with the same outcome, right? Thinking when you play it, you'll see something different. But you actually end up seeing something new over and over again. And you mentioned the, the younger generation and what they remember and, you know, some, so, you know, uh, you know, I have two sons. They're not as up on yeah. the history of the game and other things that, that I like them to be. So we got to point it out. Uh, I want to talk about uh, your career with the Steelers for a minute. Tell us about mm-hmm. Slash. Now, our young listeners might not know about your nickname and right. its origin, but from mm-hmm. 1995 to 2002, let me let me tell our young listeners, Slash was as big as it gets in the NFL. It was it. Yeah. Like, I don't care what you want to yeah. talk about today, Patrick Mahomes or uh, you yeah. know, Lamar Jackson, uh, it was all about slash Chris Berman talking yeah. about slash on ESPN. I mean, how did that come about? Uh, did you embrace that persona? Uh, and then, and then tell us about, you have a, a new podcast too, the, the edge with slash yeah. coming out. So yeah, tell, yeah. Tell, us, tell us about all that. Yeah. Well, you know, slash the right is kind of, it kind of existed throughout the generation, I guess you could say in the life of football, right. You know, um, Let's just be transparent. How many athletes you know were extremely athletic but played a quarterback position but was forced to play another position, right? So that that lifestyle existed. It never came to fruition until I stuck to my guns and said that, you know, I can help out here, but I'm going to continue to play quarterback. So how I derived was in practice, you know, I would want to participate. Right. So how does that look? We had Neil O'Donnell as a starter. We had Mike Tomczak as the backup. And we had Jim Miller, who was another quarterback that was the third string. And then I was a fourth string. Go back a little bit in the combine. I was asked by Tom Donahoe and a few other coaches. If we ask you to help us out to do other things, would you do it? I said, of course. What else am I going to say? I mean, you're running a full four and a 40 at the combine. You're your vertical jumping 38 and a half to 39 inches to long jumping 11 and a half to almost 12 feet. You know, you're doing everything when it comes to all of the, 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 the skill position things you have to do, the, whether it be the, the shuttle or whatever, your time in each one of these uh, events, you have to, you know, make sure you do a good job, but it was comparable to the athletes, to the receivers, to the DBs. So I get to Pittsburgh and guys get hurt. Neil O'Donnell gets hurt. Mike Tomczak comes in. Rob Woodson gets hurt. Uh, Barry Sanders gave him a phenomenal juke move and through the stadium, tore up his knee. Charles Johnson, a few other receivers, they get hurt. So we're just getting hurt left and right. I think at this time we're two and four at this time. Three and four, two and four. And I'm like, can I help out? Because in practice, I'm playing wide receiver. I'm doing kickoff. Uh, I'm playing quarterback. And I'm doing everything. I just, I just want to stay in shape. I don't want to sit on the sideline and hold a clipboard. Time goes on, time goes on. Neil O'Donnell sees me catching the ball and because I'm running, running around, catching it with my hands, and then I stand up and drop back and do my throws just to stay involved, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, Neil mentions that. 
and I'm beating Rob. I'm re- beating Cornell Lake in practice. I'm meeting, beating Willie Williams in practice. I'm having Greg Lloyd stand over me. I'm, I'm just beating everybody in practice, and I'm just giving the defense the business. They'll tell you this, too. Uh, LeVon Kirkland, linebacker, Kevin Green, Hall of Famer, late, late Kevin Green. And before you know it, I was asked to go in a game, and I did at quarterback in my very first snap ever going into a National Football League game against Jacksonville. We had five receivers set up. Three was on this side. Yancey Thigman was to my left with Neil O'Donnell lined up outside. Now, at this time, there never was a spy at this time because the mobile quarterback wasn't relevant in a sense to have to have a spy. So it's third and 15. I end up getting a snap. There's no one in the middle of the field. They're playing cover two. Linebackers are spread out wide. No one in the middle of the field. I catch the snap. I run up field. I get about an 18, 19-yard gain. First down. The next week, we play against the Cleveland Browns on Monday Night Football. I get the snap, do a little sprint out, try to hit Yancey in the flat when he did motion. It was covered. I reversed the field, end up throwing it in the back of the end zone to Ernie Mills. Before you know it, Slash is born. Myron Cope, that was the late Myron Cope that invented the terrible towels. He got, mm, ha, we have Slash that can bash and do everything that he wants to So then it was a phenomenon. It took a life of his own. Um, and and, and uh, being called Slash has never been a problem. Let's just say that because that's what a lot of kids are, right? Um, you look at the game today, the Lamar Jacksons, the Michael Vicks, the Donovan McNabbs. People remember Michael Vick. People now remember Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson. But this was done way back when. But they didn't have to play wide receiver as I did. Not say have to as if I was forced. But they didn't play wide receiver. Then when played quarterback, it was one of the dynamic quarterbacks in the National Football League. Let's just stay via the media and even some on the coaching staff when it comes to, you know, tolerating and celebrating. It was more tolerated than celebrated because it wasn't the norm. All right. It wasn't the norm. It was something that was in a moment in time that I'm sure most probably thought was just going to be a, a flash in the pan. And before you know it, here it is. We got Russell Wilson getting two hundred and forty five million dollars with one hundred and sixty five guaranteed. Lamar Jackson is turning down one hundred and thirty three million dollars, rightfully so, because of the marketplace and prepared to get, potentially get more because of what he's done with touchdowns, scoring more touchdowns himself with throwing and rushing than any team in the National Football League has in its totality when it comes to touchdowns made. So, you know, then I went back to play quarterback. It was very dynamic, went to the Pro Bowl, was MVP on my team, uh, was was something to be reckoned with. And a little too soon, right, uh, to be identified and recognized, you know. Um, but nonetheless, one Cordell, of, you are you are you have a very unique place in the history of football. Yes, uh, big time for, big for time. all those things, and uh, yeah, that, that that's awesome stuff. So, before we go, tell tell us about your podcast. Yeah, my podcast is on the Believe Network. Um, it's on the edge with Slash, and and all you heard me speak on just now was which is very edgy, right? You know, you play wide receiver, you're trying to play quarterback. You know, you're so good at receiver, you got the owner saying that you should have played. You know, when, when playing quarterback, you should have stayed at wide receiver. You got a head coach at the Pat Summerall event here in Atlanta when was when receiving an award. He said, I had the best receiver playing quarterback to the running backs coach. Said, if you don't play receiver on the edge, right? You know, doing it your way, right? Um, and so that's what we talk about. We talk about football. We talk about golf um, with the live tour. 
uh, and com- you know competing against the PGA Tour, giving guys opportunities, kind of its slash in its own way, right? Um, being creative, and and, and um, you know we're, we're having fun with that. And we also have another podcast too, as well, called Believe Me, uh, which is a gambling podcast that we do with myself, Brandon, and and Joe and myself. Uh, so staying busy with the Believe Network, you can find us on TuneIn. Uh, you can find on on the edge with slash on tuning. You can find us on uh, YouTube, um, and we also join with the Stadium Network. You know where we're going to be televised uh, as well, potentially um, with Thursday night football and, and, and things of that nature. So we're kind of moving in the right direction. On the edge with slash is me and uh, and my guy Kyle. You know. We're talking that stuff that you guys talking about for shop on the playground and telling the kid he's not that good. And I say he's not that good when other people are afraid to say he's not that good. I'll say it, you know? Um, so, yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to catching that. Everything you do Cordell is great and it, and it's unique. So there's, yes. there's no doubt in my mind that this will be, this will be the same. So, well, we've taken up a, a, enough of your time. You, you've been a pleasure to talk to a lot of great stories. I'm sure you got a lot more. So I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days and we can, uh, we can keep this going, but th- thanks for much, uh, so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me on K slash 10 on my social media. That's on Twitter as well as Instagram. That's that's K spell out the word slash one zero, the number. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram to follow all this information. If you can't follow us on the network. Will do for sure. Thanks again. Yeah. Good luck to you. No problem. Our final guest is brought to you by tap it. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans, and boosts your bottom line. We now welcome to the show the RNL Carriers New Orleans Bowl Executive Director, Billy Ferrante. Billy, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you, Nick. You've been the Executive Director of the New Orleans Bowl since 2005, but you've lived in New Orleans your entire life. Uh, that's pretty amazing to me. You went to LSU, worked for the Saints for a little while. Uh, you're also currently employed by the Greater New Orleans Sports Foundation. I mean, quite a quite an amazing career in sports, but to do all that without ever having to leave your home state is pretty unique. Tell us how you've been able to do that. Well, you know, I, I've had there's been opportunities to to leave Louisiana, and you know, a lot of it. Look, a lot of it at the start was being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right people. And uh, how I got on with the with the Saints originally was a happenstance meeting with Jim Finks. Uh, the president and general manager of the team back then. But there's been opportunities for me to leave. When I worked for the Saints, there was opportunities with other teams. There was an opportunity at the league office in Manhattan. And, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I love New Orleans and love Louisiana and really don't care to work anywhere else, especially at this point. The the game, it's uh, you've been there since 2005. The bowl game has been around since 2001. Right. What does this event mean to the local sports landscape in New Orleans? It's usually the first, one of the first few games to kick off bowl season. Yeah, we are. And, and you know, we always used to like to say that the, you know, bowl season with the, the Sugar Bowl being here, that, you know, the season starts and ends in New Orleans. And uh, we have, uh, you know, we've created a little bit of equity for ourselves in the community. There's a lot of stuff going on in New Orleans. And to be able to carve out your space in the calendar is important and be something that locals look to. That's always kind of been our charge is, is creating and, and maintaining that equity in the community. And um, yeah, I think we've done a, a good job of that. The, and tell us a little bit more about your organization's efforts in the New Orleans community. Well, 
from a we really a couple of years ago we we basically said we're going to kind of adopt youth at risk as uh, an initiative of ours. And we have the luxury of of the availability of, of of tickets to the game, but we also do stuff with kids throughout the, the the course of the year. And as you mentioned, you know we're from a sports foundation perspective, and and the New Orleans Bowl is for all intents and purposes the event that the sports foundation owns. Uh, wherever we can leverage the relationships that we have in the community with with those youth programs into Final Fours. Super Bowls, NBA All-Star Games, um, WrestleMania, you know, that's, we're, we're able to incorporate those kids into that. And, 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 you know, that really, to me, is where we make the biggest impact. I had a guy the other day that came to my house to deliver furniture, and I had a my bowl polo shirt on, and he told me that when he was a kid, that, uh, that he came uh, with one of the groups that we had invited to the game that year. And that kind of made it come full circle for me. How has the local business community embraced the event? And, and what are some of the key partnerships that have been invaluable to your success? I know, you know, on a, on a, you know, bigger scale, RNL carriers, you know, uh, your title right. sponsors has been huge for you guys. Tell us, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, for the, the local community has embraced this game uh, significantly and primarily the hospitality community, because we fill a void that existed pre-Christmas um, in the hospitality calendar. You know, the Sugar Bowl takes up that post-Christmas calendar. And, um, but r Carriers has been with us since 2000, the 2006 game. I think they're one of the longest tenured or the longest tenured title sponsor. And the real quick story of how that came to be was uh, on September 27th, 2006. And I remember that because September 25th, 2006 was the Monday night game that the Saints hosted against the Falcons uh, first game back in the Superdome post Katrina. And I was walking into a lunch meeting, got a phone call from a woman that was brokering the title sponsorship for us. And she said, I think I have someone interested. And what had happened was that the ownership of RNL carriers was watching that game and made a decision that they wanted to be a part of something in New Orleans. And we two days later had uh, an agreement in place for them to be our title sponsor. And it, we, we actually, we haggled back and forth longer on what the new logo was going to look like than we did the deal points, but uh, they've been a great partner. Uh, it's a, it's a relationship that has evolved as they've activated it within their sales force. They probably bring, they bring probably 300 people to the game every year. And uh, and they're basically their sales force that has either met or exceeded their pretty lofty goals. And that's their reward is being a member of their president's club and, and all that we do for them in New Orleans. And and I know this, that they were a $800 million company before they met us, and they're now about a $2.3 billion company. And I make sure that they remember every time we have that conversation that their sponsorship of the game is why. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I think that's, I don't think that's the case in every bowl game, but uh, you know, certainly in your case, sometimes when the, not only is the title sponsor investing in your game, but investing your, in your community as well. Uh, and there's really great synergy there. Uh, this past year, you had an exciting 36, 21 Louisiana victory over Marshall in your game. How much did it help to have one of the teams come from the home state? 
Well, it means a lot. You know, I mean, anytime you've got a regional participant in your game, that means, uh, uh, you know, direct, you see that directly in the, in the stands, obviously, but there's a big alumni base uh, from UL in the New Orleans area. And, you know, again, back to, back to us creating equity in the community with our name and our brand, uh, all that does is heighten that. It, it heightens the, the media uh, interest and the media awareness for the game. And, you know, that's, they've been in the game now five or six times. And we've seen that every time that uh, the, the coverage, the interest, the attendance, um, you know, everything around the game elevates when, when you have a regional team. What's your relationship like with the Sugar Bowl people? You know, I tell people all the time, there's 42 bowl games across the country. They they really don't compete with one another. They're in very different markets, but you are in the same market with the Sugar Bowl, but I know you're, you're not in competition. How, how do you guys work together to help one another? Yeah, no, we're not. I mean, look, the Sugar Bowl is an icon in the industry, and we've got a great relationship with the with the Sugar Bowl, with their staff. Uh, I, I have a personal relationship with Jeff and with their staff. Everyone on our staff has a relationship with them. We have worked with them on men's final four projects. We've worked with them on women's final four projects. We worked in support of them for the college football championship game here. And, um, you know, I, I think we, we each know that our, the space that we, uh, that we take up here and there's a lot of mutual respect uh, them to us and us to them. But, um, you know, it, it, we, we work together on creating efficiencies between our two games and whether that means equipment that we're both going to need, if it's staffing that we both utilize, um, you know, we're, we're in regular conversation with them on a, on a day-to-day basis about the bowl game, the bowl industry, uh, or just personal things. So the New Orleans Bowl has been around for a little over 20 years now. Uh, you've done a lot in that time. Looking forward, what are some of your goals for, for this year's game as well as future games? Well, again, I think back, you know, continue to the to our, ex, our goals that do not change is to continue to grow that equity in the, in the New Orleans community uh, and continue to keep our space in the hospitality uh, calendar where it is. Um, but you know, I think, I think for the future, it's just staying current on the, the ever-changing landscape of college football and making sure that our game and the bowl system, you know, remains a, a vital and and relevant component of that. Well, Billy, thanks so much for your time. You do a you do a great job uh, running your game and in everything else you do. You're you're an asset to the New Orleans sports scene. Uh, and you're an asset to college football in general. Thanks for everything you do, and thanks for joining me today. All right, Nick. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.